Welcome to the eLaborate Topics Podcast, where we focus on lab-specific strategies for medical laboratory professionals. We're proud to be the healthcare detectives that work behind the scenes to get the results needed to influence medical decisions. Let's grow together and jump right into the lab. Welcome back, friends, to another episode of eLaborate Topics. We are your hosts, Tywana Wilson, Lona Small, and Stephanie Whitehead. We are here with you with another amazing roundtable. If this is your first time tuning in, welcome. I am happy that you are no longer under a rock and you have now been able to join this podcast. And listen, we have over 130 episodes out there. You can go to directimpactbroadcasting.com or your favorite podcast platform. So if you like Spotify, you can go there and you can actually save a playlist of all of your favorite episodes. So do us a favor, share this podcast out with your friends, with your colleagues, whether they're inside or outside of the laboratory. We want to have them support this podcast and hear what we have to say. So let's get into today's episode. We are going to be giving you tips for when and if your lab is understaffed. And if you're like most laboratories in America, then your lab is understaffed. So before we get into those tips, we need to cover and talk about the workforce shortage and its impact on the laboratory. And I'm just gonna give a high level because I know that you have been hearing about the workforce shortage and hearing about how we got here today. But interestingly enough, I was recently on a webinar from uh, ASCLS and they were talking about they specifically being Jim Flanagan, the, the executive vice president of ASCLS, was talking about this coalition it formed and talking about the workforce shortage. So in 2000 and 2001, there were presidents from various lab organizations, ASCP, ASCLS, ASM, and various other ones. They got together and expressed their concerns about the workforce shortage. So think about this. This was in 2000 and in 2001. Here we are in 2023. And what they did is they got together and they talked about, uh, you know, an impending shortage and they came up with a strategic plan. So they came up with a plan where they were going to collect data and understand the impact. They were going to review and do some marketing. And this may sound familiar, especially if you have workforce shortages committees of recruiting in the K through 12 target. So reaching back to those middle school and high school students. They also, talk, also talked about financing the education because as we know, education is expensive and it is a barrier for not just the medical laboratory, but for education in general when we talk about secondary education. And then they also talked about the profession as it is in a transition. And then if you fast forward to 2021, there was a study that was conducted. So the ASCP 
2021 conducted the clinical laboratory workforce the understanding the challenges to meeting current and future needs and out of this they also had the blueprint for action and it talked about the understanding the shortage understanding the impact of the laboratory and it had three primary aims with the aims of visibility of the clinical lab occupations recruitment and retention and then increasing diversity and inclusion of the workforce. But let's just think about that for a minute. So in 2000 and 2001, those presidents met. They talked about the shortage. They talked about going to those high schools, going to those middle schools. Then in 2021, with the blueprint for action and the, the workforce study that ASCP did, here we are talking about the same things recruitment and retention, the workforce, going back to high schools, visibility of the profession. And so it's interesting that we've been talking about the shortage since 2000s and probably before, and we're still at the exact point uh, that we uh, were 20 years ago when we started this discussion. And so there are some things that are contributing to our shortage. So the pandemic and increased retirement, I think that pandemic accelerated people actually uh, looking to do other things with their life. And, you know, those people that have been in the laboratory for 30 and 40 years, other things have become more important to them at this point. So they are starting to retire. There is a statistic out there that I was, as I was researching and getting ready for today, that greater than 30% of managers are expecting to retire in the next five years. So if you think about those people that have been in the field for quite some time, holding those manager spots are getting ready to retire in the next three to five years. And most of them probably do not have a succession plan. So that means they've been in those roles for ever <laughs> been in those roles for at least 15, 20, 25 years, and here we are with no replacement. So the increased retirement is going to have an impact. It's already had an impact on our workforce. When we think about the number of CLS programs, those number of actual programs are declining. And Interestingly enough, uh, one of our friends of this show, Dr. Rodney Rohde, who is the program director for Texas State, he noted in, in several of his presentations that every year they get 35 to 50 applicants for their program, but they're only able to take 20 students. And that's because there's a limitation with clinical rotations. And so think about this. Over time, you had the decrease in the program. So those programs that uh, hospitals used to have, I know a little bit before I entered the field, hospitals had their own programs. But due to inefficiencies, those a lot of those programs closed and moved to the university programs, such as uh, Rodney's program over at Texas State and the program I went through at the University of Cincinnati, but we were having it where people are applying, 
but because of the, the limited number of clinical sites, then there are people that are getting turned away from the program, from the bachelor's program. And do we know what's happening with those students? There's no data to show if those students are reapplying to the program in, a, in another year or they are just going on to another opportunity. So we are experiencing that decrease there with less programs and less clinical sites as well. And of course, we can't talk about shortage without talking about pay. So again, as I was getting ready for, for this presentation uh, and looking at the salary of medical laboratory scientists over time, at least from 2015 to today, the salary has remained relatively flat, even though uh, the environment has changed, the cost of living has increased, but the salary itself, at least for medical laboratory sciences, have, have been relatively flat. Uh, there has been some increase with medical laboratory technicians but not as much uh, with the medical laboratory scientists. And so pay, people have to pay for their student loans, the cost of education. And, you know, that's very expensive. You got healthcare that people are paying for. So you have the, the reason for the need for pay, uh, which isn't happening. And then with the pandemic, and of course, with the short staffing, people are just burnt out, right? Like people can do overtime here and there, but once it starts to become part of the regular schedule, then it starts to get where it's too much, right? So now we're seeing where people are just being burnt out. They're mentally and physically exhausted, and, and it doesn't appear as though there's any help in, in the future. And so we want to give you some tips today of how you can navigate in your laboratory when it's understaffed because I think we're going to be at this place for a period of time. I don't, I don't think we're going to, you know, get out of this place in the next three to five years. I think we're going to continue to see a, a decline in the workforce and it's going to take some innovative strategies, but it's also going to take some collaborative strategies because as I mentioned before, We've been talking about some of these things since 2000, 2001, and we're in 2023 at the time of this recording, and we're still talking about those same initiatives. And I just want to leave you with one other factor that I thought was interesting from a talk that I heard as we talked about the decrease in clinical programs. There's also an overall decline and students pursuing secondary education, whether that's a two-year degree or four-year degree. And I probably would contribute some of that to cost, some of that to people thinking of other career opportunities that maybe didn't or don't require a traditional four-year or two-year education. Maybe people are looking at the trades, but we're also starting to see where yes, you're getting you know less people going through the program, but you're also seeing a, a decrease in, in people looking for traditional education. So ladies, what do you all think about that? I think that's very interesting. You know, I've been in my current role for almost um, 10 years and 
Um, it's a pretty large laboratory um, and comparable to the size of the city. If we're fully staffed, we have well over 300 employees. And I think in the 10 years that I've been here, or nearly 10 years, we've never been fully staffed. It goes in waves of you know, types of staffing that we're struggling with, whether it be technologist or, and then sometimes it's phlebotomist, you know, um, a lot of times reference laboratories or commercial laboratories will raise their uh, pay, uh, you know, a, a little bit, maybe even the smallest 25 cents. And we'll see a lot of our staff leave to go and take some of those positions. Um, many times they'll get, you know, swallowed up through travelers because, you know, you can get, you can get more money doing that. A lot of, um, really the underlying, uh, root cause is, is many times due to money. Um, because as you said, things are costing more and, and right now at the time of this recording in 2023, there's a large conversation nationally about the cost of eggs, you know, <laughs> you know, and so when it gets down to inflation and, you know, looking at bare necessities, people start to look at, you know, you know, what am I doing with my life and how can I continue to take care of myself and my family um, effectively and be able to live and all of those things come into factor. So, you know, I, I agree with you. I think we're going to be in this spot for a while. In addition, I think, you know, it's easier for, for people who may be younger um, in age to view, you know, uh, the world is is not needing to be, you know, uh, a standard nine to five, four year degree, you know, middle class position. You can make a lot of money being a content creator or being a YouTuber, you know, or, you know, being a famous TikToker. And so I think there's more opportunity that um, offers people what they would feel like is more flexibility in their life with adequate, you know, finances rather than spending years and years in school and accruing a lot of student loan and debt um, to get, you know, what what it sounds like is a flat rate for the for the bulk of the beginning of your career. So, uh, you know, we, we've got to do some things because, you know, it's a multifaceted issue. It's going to take a lot to um, really fix this issue. What do you think, Lona? Yes, Um for my experience, like I've been in the lab for many, many years, and I think I've worked in smaller hospital and bigger hospital. And um, for this big hospital that I'm working, it's really the first that we're actually experiencing such a major issue when it comes to staffing. And so um, really, I start thinking what happened, especially after the pandemic, we started feeling it. I know it's been felt across the country, but I think for the bigger institutions, we kind of just start feeling it or maybe the institution that attract a lot of people. But what I'm thinking is that people are really rethinking, like you say, Stephanie, about their jobs and what do they want to deal with? Do they want to deal with a lot of stress on their jobs? So um, there's a lot of job hopping right now with people trying to find the best place and also people making other decisions about their jobs. So I think when we're considering attracting, we have to think about the emotional part, the mental. I know um, Taiwan has mentioned burnout, but we have to think about that also because people are making decisions where their wellness are concerned. Right. 
And, you know, we have to be our own solution. You know, we, we do know that the leaders of many of our professional organizations are doing some really hard work and gathering data and putting together committees at a very high level to try to address this nationally and internationally. But, you know, for you all who are managing and operating and being leaders in your individual labs, you need tips for today so you can staff your shifts that you have come up over the weekend so you can fill the vacancies that you have right now. And so that's the point of this podcast. So I'm going to give you a couple of operational tips that you can, you know, hopefully implement or um, put some of these in place or hopefully think about to try to impact your staffing issue. The first one is develop a relationship with your local programs, CLS programs, MLT programs, phlebotomy programs. We did a great episode in season two, um, episode 28, and it was called uh, the Leveraging the Power of Local Advocacy to Impact the Workforce Shortage. And that episode featured Dr. Banks, who is an MLT program coordinator um, in the Bronx. And, you know, she had a lot of information of how, you know, hospitals can partner with programs to really, you know, have a, a huge impact on their staffing because you've got that constant flow of fresh new candidates um, coming into your laboratory. And so um, I would, and you heard what Taiwana said, you know, Dr. Rohde's got 20 students who are out there wanting to be medical laboratory scientists, applying to be in his program, and they can't take them because they don't have enough programs. What what would happen if they did have enough programs? How many more candidates would that be per year for the next five years into our profession? So if you're not currently supporting uh, clinical rotations with a local program or school, consider doing that. It does um, take some work on your team. But again, it is helpful in the long run to have that steady stream of students coming in who can be uh, working a working body after they've graduated um, from their rotation. Uh, The first thing I would say, and this is one of the things that we do most uh, when we are critically staffed, but we try to do it all the time, um, is increase your communication. And it's a very simple tip. Uh, But a lot of times, techs, phlebotomists, they just want to know that you know that they are (laughs) short-staffed. And, you know, they want you to acknowledge that there is a staffing issue. And a lot of times that's all techs need is for their leader to come through and say, guys, we know you're working short. We know you guys are working hard. We know you're pulling a lot of shifts and we appreciate what you're doing. Here's what we're doing to help you out. And just those encouraging words, just that acknowledgement of their extra effort really does going along, does go a long way. Um, You showing the staff that, you know, you are transparent about what you're doing to right size the staffing situation at the time um, and being transparent about um, what their frustrations are um, really helps them feel uh, supported and can help reduce some of that frustration and anxiety that leads to turnover, um, helping them see that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. I can recall, you know, we were severely short staffed in one of our areas and I literally put up a tracker board um, for each vacancy and said, look, we've got interviews scheduled On this day for this person, if this person accepts the job and we can get them to start by this date and get them trained in at least one or two benches by this date, then we can start approving PTO. Um, If we can get this student who is graduating 
um, through their training and start it by this date, then you guys can stop taking, you know, on call. And it helped them really have a visual of the end of the the end, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel. It also helped them be on board, you know, uh, really, you know, sometimes technologists don't understand the impact that they have. And so once they saw that in a visual display, a lot of them were like, okay, yeah, let's hurry up and get such and such through their training. So, you know, we got a little downtime. Let's go ahead and, you know, review this procedure. Let's go ahead and go ahead and get you checked off on this competency. You know, it, it motivated many of them to, you know, um, make sure that they were working and doing what they could to get people through training um, and getting their competencies signed off. But I think that's a huge thing. Communication goes a long way when you are short staffed. Um, I would say also in terms from looking at things from operational standpoint, look at cross training and overlapping your teams where you can um, cross training. Uh, one, you know, helps people prepare to step in when there is a vacancy, but it allows your staff to do more than one task. Um, and so if you can cross train in some of your areas, um, if you have that uh, availability, then I would say definitely look at that. Um, if you've got the ability to automate some tasks that are manual, if you've got a lot of manual reports, or if you're not, you know, auto verifying right now and your equipment has the ability to do so, you might look at doing some of those things, just taking some of the workload off of the team that is still left and doing, you know, all of that work. Look at the body of work that they're doing and how can I alleviate some of that and help reduce some of that workload on there. And I'm going to throw out another previous episode that we recorded and it's also from season two episode four and it was called lean on me featuring sarah cook and she gave a lot of great tips for lean process management and how to eliminate waste and when you're short-staffed you really do want to look at what are your processes and how can i make them as lean as possible so my staff can be as efficient as possible um, until they can get some help um Couple more, I would say rethink, you know, the projects you have and try to prioritize, you know, what's on your plate to do. Um, maybe even scale back some of the things that you have on your to-do list. Um, that way, like I said, the working shifts can focus on, you know, what is important. And you might even put that up. Sometimes visuals help people. Um, to And you being transparent and effectively communicating also helps. So creating a plan prioritizing the task and then determining these are the things that we really have to do. Um, these are the things that we like to do when we get a couple of more people. And then these are the things that we want to, you know, do when we are fully staffed. That way people know exactly what their priorities are and they're all working towards the same goal. And if your budget allows, maybe even outsourcing some of the testing that you're doing. Some tests that are not stat and can accommodate a longer turnaround time, of course, because you'll be sending them out to a reference lab. Um, but you may even look at doing that. Now, that will increase your operational costs. So, you know, whatever chain of command you have to get that approved, you might want to look at that. But um, again, if you can prioritize the tests, the projects, the tasks that your staff is doing. So they're focusing on the main thing because, you know, they are working very short and we don't want them to get burnout. The last thing I would say is, is look at your hiring efforts and we have to get creative with these hiring efforts and get creative also with your staffing. You know, if you're able to look at, you know, travelers or contract workers, um, it, it's, uh, 
one of the one of the strategies that we use in our laboratory is is PRN positions, um, and it's not, you know, the most favorable one because you have a, a PRNs are sometimes looked at as positions where they're not fully bought in. You know, these people may have other jobs that are full time, and so they're not completely engaged or bought into your culture or what you're doing in your laboratory. But a lot of PRNs can can um, really fill up, you know, an entire weekend, you know, shift or a couple of shifts. Um, and so if you can find some PRNs that can come a couple of days a week and maybe work one or two benches and then use your more experienced technologist to do, you know, maybe more of your complicated you know, high complexity or moderately complex testing or manual testing and let your PRNs, you know, offload maybe some of the stuff that is more automated or easier to do in the laboratory. Again, that helps your full-time staff not feel so overloaded and burnt out. Um, And when I say get creative with your hiring efforts, you know, when we were really short-staffed and working with our human resources, we found that they were still advertising in newspapers. And I had to say, hold on, who is reading the newspaper? Who Who is really looking for a job in the newspaper? You know, we had to revamp that and we had to start looking at posting on LinkedIn. And, uh, you know, a lot of CLS and technologist programs have Facebook pages. You know, let's post to their Facebook page where we have our openings at. Let's use social media. Let's go to where people are actually looking for a job. Um, and so, you know, really look at where are you posting your stuff? How are you getting your candidates? Are you going to job fairs? Are you um, not only reaching out to CLS programs, but reaching out, you know, I, I think it was mentioned in the conference that Taiwana talked about um, in her piece, uh, reaching out to those chemistry majors and biology majors, because there are pathways to being um, a laboratory um, technologist, some pathways for people with a chemistry or biology background. And, you know, like I said, we have to get creative because this isn't going away anytime soon. So somebody is going to be graduating soon with a chemistry background and they don't have a job lined up and they don't know what career field they're going into. Let's scoop them up and, you know, let's help them get on a, on a track to a specialized certification um, through through work in your laboratory. And so I think, you know, uh, we've done a lot of different episodes on, you know, on this topic. Uh, one more I can mention is back from season one featuring um, Jim Payne. He's a friend of the of the podcast. <laughs> you know, he's a big fan of the podcast. And we did an episode with him and Dana Powell Baker called Hiring on All Cylinders. And Jim has a program, um, a really successful program in his area uh, where he has been able to use his program and his students as a funnel to his local community for impacting just what we're talking about, this workforce shortage. So I would say develop those relationships. Networking is always key to helping with many problems. Um, So developing relationships, seeing what your colleagues are doing. um, And I think, you know, what Lona is going to talk about is you can do all of these efforts to keep people engaged, keep people going, you know, preventing burnout, managing your tasks, getting them help. But then when they get in that culture, you know, (laughs) you know, we don't want to run them away as soon as we get them here. 
And I tell my staff, I got you the help, but if you're going to run them out of here, you know, we're going to have this revolving cycle. So, you know, I would say if, if you haven't turned up your volume, stick around and get a pen and click it twice so Lona can tell you about how to manage that culture and how to get down to the root cause of why you have turnover. So as you are doing all of these efforts and putting all these things in place, you can actually get staff that will stick and hopefully eliminate this problem. What do you think, ladies think? Thanks so much, Stephanie. Um, yeah, you, you, say, you said um, we, there's a lot that we really need to do. And um, I was so big on processes. I've spent a lot of years really focusing on processes, doing getting my PMP, certified business process management, lean ROI. But then the more that I work on processes, the more I realize the importance of people and culture. People first, no matter what processes you have in place, if you don't have happy people or if you have a lot of um, disgruntled team members, if you have a lot of stress, burnout, conflict that can cause what they call toxic work environment, then we have a major problem on our hands. Um, the people are the biggest assets. And so creating that culture that's going to have people wanting to come back to work is so important. So I was asked to talk on the topic of um, culture changes, tips that we can um, use to create the culture that we would want to have people working, even if we're short staff. And so... Um, Basically, you're, you want to create that great culture. And just to say, if people hear that word culture, just to clarify, basically culture is defined as shared values and beliefs and behavioral norms in an environment. So if people would say to you, this is how we do things here, basically this is how generally we do things, that's the culture. You can have good or bad culture, so we want to have that good culture and where people are really enjoying the work that they do. We, we did an episode on ha, um, creating that happy work environment. You want an environment where people are psychologically safe. Um, Stephanie spoke uh, uh, about communication, but people should really feel safe to speak up. They should feel supportive, respected, um, feel as if they're working towards a common goal, they're more engaged and there's a opportunity to contribute and they feel valued when they contribute. And then lastly, because of that great culture, you're attracting great talents. So um, there are three tips that I'm gonna give. And um, the first one is effective onboarding. And I know we did a episode, I'm not sure exactly which one, but we talk a lot about Onboarding. I think there was episode 64 talking about creating a work environment for better staff retention. That was in season one. I know Stephanie did a lot on um, onboarding. But for onboarding, of course, before we even can think of either if we have a great culture and we're going to um, introduce new team members or if we have a harbor culture, we have to start onboarding. So you want to ensure that the new team member feel comfortable and they feel connected. There are clear expectations. You want to reduce any kind of surprise. So things like performing tours, 
introducing them to important um, people or resources that they may need, set up maybe a buddy system so that they feel connected to someone that can support them or answer questions. And with that buddy system, you could build trust so that whenever they are challenged, they can actually have someone. Um, find out their interests or what committees they may want to participate in because people want to feel connected at work. If there's this connection, it's easy for them to lead. So if they're contributing based on their interests on a committee, maybe a diversity committee or just some fun committee or something that they love to do, Find that out during the onboarding and get them connected there at that point. If they're international, connect them with other people with similar culture or um, connect them with different events or things of interest or food. So that onboarding is really important to have people connected um, at work to help with the kind of how they assimilate into the culture. The next thing when it comes to tips of culture is to improve proactive or open communication that Stephanie spoke about communication. That's so important. So I, I would think that that really start with modeling. And when it comes to leadership, it's good to model to create that open communication through rounding and listening. So you do regular rounding where you're basically listening so you know if there whatever is going on. So you listen and you do follow up on those feedback. So when you do that, you're basically setting that pace where the, the team feels safe and they see that you're responsive. So you're actually also creating that psychological safety so that when there's a challenge, they feel safe to speak up. So you model the way and then you create that culture for your team where people feel safe to speak up when there's a challenge. And um, this is for leaders, but if for team members who are listening, don't assume that leadership know what's going on all the time. Things that may be like you think that everybody knows, you're talking about it is obvious. Why aren't they doing something about it? But nobody went to leadership about it. So speak up if there's something going on that may be ruining your team. It's so important to speak up. So having those proactive, open communication is another way to improve the culture of your team. Then the third thing is improving toxic environment. And that's another thing that I hear a lot, um, especially recently when they're, you know, we're short staff, there's a lot of burnout, actually had someone reach out to me and actually was a team member who decided that she was going to take it up on as a project to interview the team because there were just so much going on. They were having high turnover. And she said, can you come in to help us with toxic work environment. So I know that's used a lot. So I'm like, I decided I'm going to look up what people regard as toxic work environment. What I see is that people feel psychologically unsafe. They feel uncomfortable to speak up. There's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of aggressive behavior, unhealthy competition, conflict, and of course, rapid turnover. So how do we improve that? So, of course, the understaff, 
is going to lead sometimes to toxic work environment. However, if things are not managed correctly. So if things are left on its own and people feel um, stressed and overworked, you know, you may have a lot of the conflicts coming up. So that has to be managed. So a lot of some of the things that I mentioned before are some things that can help with toxic environment, like the onboarding and the, the communication. Another thing that I find that helped a lot, I think the main thing is really reducing the stress. But one thing that I help, that helped a lot is providing healthy distraction. And I know we talk a lot about creating that happy work environment, but I just want to give you some tip, tips on healthy distraction. So be, in, be intentional about having fun activities, even if you're busy. Even if it's me like, okay, we're going to have, it's seasonal. So let's do something for, for Thanksgiving. Let's do something for different holidays. And it just may just mean we just have a special meal. People come in and just some distraction, different celebration, diversity. So any excuse for people to just laugh and be surprised, um, locker contests, um, um, recently, we have a cultural awareness day where people came in with their international costumes and they have memorabilia and they display them on tables. And it didn't take much time. People just use their lunch breaks and their breaks to come and walk around and look around and they have special cocoa. And a lot of time with the, the different um, distraction, you may have a quick raffle. They go back to work and their name is announced that they won something but just something to make your team smile and create memories that you want that positive memory at work so that um, you're really creating an environment of um, community, an environment where there's connection, an environment when they're in a committee, they're contributing in a way and whatever their contribution is valued. The last thing I'm gonna talk about when it comes to toxic environment is reducing the stress. It's so important to support your team when it comes to your, their mental fitness. And mental fitness is the capacity to respond to challenges with positive rather than negative mindset. And if you read about um, toxic environment, people say it's a lot of negativity. So basically, you're reducing the stress. If you can provide, I know it depends on how big your organization is, um, Hopkins is a huge institution. They provide reduced um, access to calm so people can use that for um, just to have um, mute, certain calm music or meditation. Another thing that um, I'm going to tell you about is the mental fitness program, and you can contact me about that. For that program, you basically have activities throughout the day that leaders can use with their team. That's something that you use with your team. So you have activities throughout the day to keep your mind at a certain level where you're more positive. You have clear decision making. You have more um, connection. So it actually helps with peak performance, peace of mind and wellness, healthy relationships. And basically what it does with the team when it comes to peak performance, you have confidence, 
as your as leadership and team, you basically have a lot of connection. It increased productivity and I can go on and on. But mental fitness is so important when it comes to the team culture and reducing stress and having clarity and improving productivity. So if you want to learn more, you can always contact me when it comes to that. But basically, I try to go as fast as I could. And basically, in terms of improving culture, think about communication. Think about um, creating that. Think about the reducing toxic work environment and think about your onboarding um, scenario. Um, ladies, is there anything that you'd want to either comment on or add? Yeah, I, you know, I've said this in a couple of different podcasts that you couldn't pay me to work, you know, in a toxic work environment, even if you said, okay, you're going to get $5 million a year you know, to do X, Y, and Z. And so a lot of times it's a common phrase, but people don't leave their job. They leave their boss or their coworkers or their environment. And so, again, I think Lona gave out some really good tips, but um, the moral is you, you have to also, while you're doing the work to figure out how to keep the compliance going, how to keep the QC reviewed and how to keep the temperature logs, you know, um, accurate, you also have to do work to understand what is the root cause of, you know, my turnover and how do I fix that so I can fix this bleeding, how I can stop this bleeding um, of of people coming in and leaving because that's taxing on your team too to continuously train and continuously, um, you know, have to be onboarding or orienting people just to watch them walk out of the door. Um, and then, you know, that contributes to burnout also. And so you, you've got to do that work. And, you know, a lot of the tactics that, you know, were used previously earlier in our careers, or I guess I could use the phrase back in the day, you know, won't work now. You know, you have to understand you know, where am I standing in terms of diversity and inclusion and equality? Where do I stand in terms of providing a supportive environment that supports um, employee wellness? Um, where do I stand with, you know, trauma-informed care and supervision? And those are all things you have to think about in terms of managing with emotional intelligence, because that's what um, our workforce requires today. So. Yeah, I think you all mentioned some really, really good tips. Yours and the operation piece, Stephanie, and then Lona and yours and the culture piece. And it reminded me as we were talking about communication and the importance of that, especially when you your team is short-staffed, is to be careful of the words you use. There are some words that, that you can use, believe it or not, could aid a toxic work environment. I know for me, I'm in a lot of meetings and it seems like every other meeting, who, the, whoever is running the meeting starts it off with, I know you all are so busy. I know you all are so busy. I know you all are so busy. And if you hear something so much, you start to believe it, right? So you're like, I'm so busy. And then you look around and you're like, there's no people working. There's nobody here, right? And so that accelerate things. And so, you know, that was one of the things I used to hear at when I was very active 
in my community and work and sorority and all of that. And I would hear you're doing so much. I know you don't have a lot of time because you're doing so much and you're so busy. I heard it so much. I really started to believe that to be true when you have time for whatever you want. But if you think about that with your staff and if you're using that, like, I know you all are so busy. I know you all are so busy. It's so busy. And they look around and they're like, well, and we show so short staff, but we don't see any improvement. It can help aid a toxic work environment. So I just wanted to throw that in because sometimes our words uh, are not sometimes our words are powerful. And some of those little things that you might not think is a big deal could be a big deal, especially if somebody's working 50 and 60 hours and they hear they're so busy, but yet the resources are so slim. So as you managers out there, or especially you new managers out there, be careful of the words that you choose and that the how you're setting the atmosphere, because something as innocent as that could be aiding to a toxic work environment or a stressful work environment. Because then your your team, your leads are like, I'm so busy. I don't have time to get the things done that I need to get done. So that that was what I, I thought about as well. One of the tips that, you know, I learned from a mentor early in my career was, you know, start things out with what's working well. So when you have a meeting or you have a one-on-one, you ask, okay, so what's working well? What are some of the things that we're doing good? Um, Because it's so easy to start just spouting off. I can name a hundred things that are not working well. But if you ask me at the top of our meeting, the very first question is what's working well? I have to like change my mindset to think, okay, what is actually working well? And it changes the atmosphere and the tone and the direction of the rest of the conversation and the rest of the meeting, because then you've kind of moved everybody into a more positive and productive mindset. And so that might be something um, to also think about. It came in my head when Taiwana was talking about the choosing your words. Yeah, I like what you ladies said about um, my mindset. Emotional intelligence is so important for leadership. Creating that mindset is so important. And so thank you all for those great tips. Um, I'm hoping that the listeners will go back and listen with a pen and hopefully can apply that in the workplace because it's going to be very applicable for almost all of our labs, because we are all challenged right now with understaffing. So thank you so much. And thank you so much, beautiful listeners, for listening to this episode. So you can listen to this episode and other episodes on directimpactbroadcasting.com, where we air every Tuesday a new episode, or you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And we are also on LabVine, so you can jump on to LabVine and you'll get all of our episode on LabVine. And there you can register for free, so that's great. And also, we'd want for you to engage with us on our LinkedIn group and Facebook group. So if you're on LinkedIn, look up for Elaborate Topics Podcast LinkedIn group and join our group. And also on Facebook. Um, on Facebook, sometimes you get um, some of those episode um, reminders. So join us on Facebook and LinkedIn and email us if you have questions or if you want to be a guest on the show, you can email us at elaborate topics 
at directimpactbroadcasting.com. And you can also submit a request to be a guest on the show by going into directimpactbroadcasting.com. So thank you so much, guests, for listening to our show and have a great one. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Elaborate Topics where your hosts discussed relevant strategies for laboratory professionals. Please subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and listen to us on directimpactbroadcasting.com. Stay tuned for another episode with information you can use to excel in your laboratory career.